0: Hello, everyone. What you're about to listen to is a re-airing of an old podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. My name is Robert Winfrey, and you'll be hearing more from me, well, past me, shortly. This particular episode originally aired October 17th, 2014, just for chronological context, and features myself and a frequent collaborator of mine, Jeffrey Harris, talking about a rather interesting time period in the WWE's history. This is everything post-WrestleMania 17, more or less, after the Attitude Era, which it's largely accepted culminated at WrestleMania 17. But specifically, we kind of talk like 2001 to 2009-ish. And this is an interesting period in that company's history for a few different reasons. You have the invasion angle, which we talk a little bit about here. Uh, not, not a whole lot, because that... It's kind of been talked to death, but we do talk about that a little bit. Uh, We go then into the end of that, which is a really difficult period to try and properly categorize because it's not quite the Ruthless Aggression Era. It's like there's a weird transition period between the Attitude Era and what we kind of now define as the Ruthless Aggression Era. They're close, but there's a little bit of overlap there. And then we kind of come up against what was at the time... More the modern era, what's what's kind of derisively called the PG era. Which started, uh, again, right around 2010, give or take. So, we talk about this kind of an interesting time period in professional wrestling. Some with some of the biggest superstars in the world. Some uh, without once they left or retired or took more back seats. And, you have different heel factions and whatnot. Because everyone loves a bad guy focused on discussing villainy. Across all various kind of mediums. And professional wrestling, half of the... If you're a professional wrestler, at some point in your career, you will be called upon to make people hate you. That is the job of the heel. And no podcast that wants to look at bad guys could really be complete without a look at the world of professional wrestling. This is especially true with some of the people around me. So this was part of a kind of anthologized series that I had looking at professional wrestling... Uh this was the finale will be the next episode that is re released of this, and that was the the most modern times at the again when it was recorded back in two thousand fourteen. Could be a whole other series that covers the intervening what, eight years, give or take. So uh yeah, this is just myself and Jeff talking about that period of time in the history of the world wrestling at the time they were WWE, they'd changed their name. So I want to thank you all very much for listening. First of all, second, please do like, comment, subscribe, give us a star rating, a written review, whatever is appropriate for the podcast medium of your choice. If you've already done so, please share. And I apologize for having to do this spiel every time, but well, I do. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsors for this particular uh, podcast. First up is uh, my notes here, uh, Grammarly. That's where we'll start. We'll start with Grammarly. Grammarly, uh, for you, listeners of the W2M network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. And really, it helps on Twitter. So many people could use this on Twitter. So many. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors... Improving your vocabulary and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork to download Grammarly for free. There will also be a link in the description of this podcast below, so give that a click. It helps us out. Grammarly's a wonderful service. Also on the wonderful service list, uh, Amazon Music. Uh, we hear Amazon is giving away to, again, you listeners here of this particular podcast, a free 30 days of Amazon Music Unlimited with their 70 million plus song library. It's basically, I tend to think it's the best music streaming service on the internet. Uh, if you disagree, fair enough, but if you haven't tried it, then how would you know? So go to getamazonmusic.com slash w 2 network or just click the link in the description below. 30 days free... Of all of that songs, all of those podcasts, it's all great. After that, if you'd like to keep it, there's the usual fee. If not, you lost nothing and you gained a free 30 days of music. So get AmazonMusic.com slash W2M Network one more time. You have nothing to lose. Not a darn thing. All right. That's it for this part of the intro. I'm now going to throw it to myself back in the year 2014 to talk professional wrestling villains past me. Take it away.
1: Your personal uh, bi-weekly look, we'll go with bi-weekly for the moment, I haven't been good at doing this every week, and I apologize for that, but we're at the moment since we're kind of every other week. Your weekly, bi-weekly look into the world of evil, all the fun things that go on, uh, and why it makes you know life so much better, why it makes our heroes so great. I'm Robert Winfrey, your host. Now, I'm still kind of trucking through the wonderful world of professional wrestling, A couple of weeks ago, I had on Gavin Napier of the Casual Heroes and Steve Cook of 411mania.com. We talked about pretty much the entire existence of World Championship Wrestling, including a fair amount of the Jim Crockett Promotions era. And that dovetails into a couple of weeks before that. Sorry, I talked about the Attitude Era. Uh, I believe I had Mark Radlich on for that show, though I, I might be confusing my guess, but I'm pretty sure that was Mark. And that all kind of has brought us to a head to where we're starting tonight where the WWE, if you're looking at kind of the history of professional wrestling, especially in North America, World Wrestling Entertainment, as it is known now, it has conquered the world. They've ECW was folded. They've purchased WCW for pennies on the dollar. They rule the world now, professional wrestling. This all was announced right around the time of WrestleMania 17, and that's kind of where we're picking up tonight. The end of WCW and... We're going to go with my, my self-imposed timeline for this particular discussion tonight. starts with WrestleMania 17 and ends with WrestleMania 25. This is a very important eight to nine year period in the company's history. Old guys go away, new guys start rising. A lot of fun stuff to be had, and since this is Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, we'll be talking about all of these fun characters through the lens of the Great Heel, which is a professional wrestling term for the villains. You're not supposed to like them. So we're going to be talking about the great characters that came about during this time period. A lot of great names we're going to get into. Before we get too far, I've got a special guest again. Yay me. And yay to all of you. So it's not just me talking. But uh, he was last heard on this show, actually, a while back when I talked about Pixar. I was doing Disney characters, and since Pixar is now owned by Disney, I wanted to give Pixar their own show. Jeff Harris was nice enough to come on and talk with me about Pixar Studios, their history and their films, and he was more than kind enough to come back tonight and talk about this period in professional wrestling. So everybody, welcome back. 411 Mania, Luminary, and Jack of All Trades, Jeff Harris. Welcome back, Jeff.
2: Once again, it is me, the J to the E to the double F three, Robert Winfrey. What an amazing show it is to have me on it. Um, you're welcome very much, listeners, I'm Robert Winfrey, and everybody loves a bad guy, because I am taking over! Alright,
1: now let's go ahead and start this, I I said, you know, Wrestlemania 17 is kind of our starting point, that's kind of the... Oh my god, universe. Robert,
2: you know so well my introduction, I mean...
1: I know so well, I know selled so yeah. everyone's <laughs> introduction. <Yeah. laughs> I am the Japanese professional wrestler of podcast introductions, I know so yeah. at all. There's some
2: fighting spirit,
1: though. Piero Dessu. There we go. Yeah, I, I'm Kenta Kobashi. I know sell it. I fire up. I hit a big lariat. I get the one. That, that's my game plan for every one of these things. All right, WrestleMania 17. Uh, the Astrodome in Houston, Texas, I believe. Uh, though, correct me if I'm wrong, some of these uh, locations are going are probably going to escape Houston, me. But
2: Texas, April, uh, what was it, April 2nd? I believe so. April 1st, April 1st 2001. First my hometown of Houston, the last great event at the at the Houston Astrodome before it was basically uh turned into uh nothing. When it was the home of the Houston Astros, our baseball team. And this was the most full this was, in the history of the Astrodome. This was probably the most full it had ever been. 67,925 people.
1: And you were one of them.
2: Exactly. I was there.
1: All right, now I'm curious then because rewatching the event, I couldn't watch it live. I lived uh, in a location without television. I had dial-up internet, 36 bits a second, I forget exactly. Old days, way back in the day. But I've seen replays of the event. Now I'm to the end of WrestleMania 17, which is kind of regarded as the last hurrah, the closing chapter what will you what have you of the Attitude Era in uh, World Wrestling Entertainment. Vince McMahon helped Stone Cold Steve Austin win the heavyweight championship. They shake hands and share a beer. Austin allying himself with the most hated and despised character in the history of that promotion or probably any other promotion. Uh, the Mr. McMahon character, great. And uh, again, feel free to look up the Attitude Era episode to hear me, me and Mark talk about that. But Austin sides with McMahon and the crowd still goes wild. So as someone who was there, I got to ask you, was that... Now, that's supposed to be Austin's big heel turn, did it? And he's still treated as the conquering hero. Was there just no way he was going to get booed at WrestleMania in Texas?
2: People that weekend... I mean, Austin is... He's not like a native son of Houston, but he's like an adopted son. He's from Victoria, Texas. Victoria is really a short drive away from... um, He would. Everyone was just so desperate to see him win. He had been out of the main event scene for quite a while. He he had, uh, you know, they did the whole who hit Steve Austin. It was Rikishi, of course, uh, if you all remember that. He he spent pretty much uh, almost a year on the shelf, and people were just ready to see Stone Cold have a run again. People wanted to see uh, Stone Cold as champion again in te- in Texas, mind you. Um, at the time, it was like The Rock had pretty much been carrying uh, the ball and running with it, you know, with Austin out of the picture. And The Rock had ascended to a whole other level of popularity. But at that point, The Rock didn't even really need the belt anymore because he had just gotten to an insane level of popularity. And I'm not sure that Stone Cold ever got to himself just because, you know, the Rock is a he's a superstar uh beyond wrestling right now. You know what I mean? And I don't think yeah. Stone Cold ever really achieved that.
1: Within wrestling, Austin is probably the biggest. And I say that with all due respect to everyone else who can hold that title, and there's a lot of them. Within the realm of professional wrestling, Austin is probably the biggest name. If you talk about if you talk about professional wrestling to people who are not fans, they think of either Hulk Hogan or the Rock before they think of Stone Cold. And that's not a knock on anyone. That's just the way their careers went. And The Rock is now one of the most significant box office draws going and has just, again, transcended the genre, whereas Austin never quite achieved that.
2: And I'll, I'll give you, on the on the turn, I was, I get at the time, I remember even being a little conflicted on it. But I think what I kind of remember at the time is that The Rock had kind of surpassed Steve Austin on, on a purely babyface level. And I think on some level people saw Steve Austin as a little bit of a stagnant baby face. Because even though Austin kind of defined the whole Attitude Era of the Shades of Grey and Tweener, uh, the fans essentially made him a face. And siding with Vince McMahon, you know, making him the new villain um, was interesting. I think Houston was, was the wrong place to do it, is basically what I think because no one, no one really wanted to, as you said, no one wanted to boo Austin that night. So turning him heel in Houston, I think, was probably not the best thing to do.
1: Well, everyone kind of involved with that uh, has gone on record and been a little critical of it. Austin said it was his call. He wanted to turn heel. He's mentioned numerous times that if he could go back and do it again, he would have. Sh- during the midst of shaking Vince McMahon's hand, he would have told him, watch the stunner, stunned him and still been the conquering hero. Uh, and there's a legitimate line of thought there as well. I mean, it's not what happened, obviously, but it's fun to play what if.
2: Yeah, but now, I mean, it's, it's hindsight, you know? I mean, it is. We, only, we only think and know these things because of how things evolve. And personally, I don't really like to look look back. The event itself, it doesn't take away just from how epic and amazing the event was. It was an amazing event. And I think I think the reason people are just so disheartened with the product right now is that I feel like at this event there was kind of there was a little bit of something for everybody. There was something for everyone on the card. It was 4 hours, but even even in 4 hours they packed in a lot of wrestling to this card and it's like I don't know what it is. The way they they way they program pay-per-views now, it's just not they don't economically spread everything out very well.
1: Well, if you look at 17 I mean, you started with Regal and Jericho for the IC belt, if memory serves. I'm not looking at the card. I'm going to go off the top of my head here, so some of this is probably going to be wrong. But you had that. You had a fun, hardcore brawl between uh, Raven, the Big Show, and Kane. You even had that uh, screwy European title between uh, Test and Eddie Guerrero, I want to say. You had the technical classic between Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit. You had the crazy, uh, the absolute insanity of TLC2. You had the wild, hate-filled kind of old-school brawl with uh, The Undertaker and Triple H, and then you had the clash for the ages of the second meeting of The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, it's about as perfect a card top to bottom as you can, as you will ever find. There's a reason it's still held in such high regard to this day.
2: You also had Undertaker, Triple H, um, and you had, you know, for the comedy question, you had the gimmick battle role. Now, was it good wrestling? No, but... It was fun to see all those guys again. It was fun, even though I was in the crowd. I was so happy to see Bobby Heenan and Eugene uh, <laughs> return at a WWE event because we saw they got their own entrances, and it was just it was fun. It, it was only three minutes long. They didn't keep it too long, um, and it was fun to see all those guys just have a, a little bit of fun. It was good filler, you know. I don't. I don't really mind filler or comedy at a wrestling event, but make it, you know, make it make it worth watching, you know? And yeah. don't over and don't overdo it. This that was that was perfectly fine for me.
1: Yeah, there's nothing wrong with filler when it's good filler. You can't be balls to the wall action for a full pay-per-view. It just doesn't work. You have things have to be paced properly or the crowd gets burned out. And that has happened at other WrestleManias, and other wrestling events where what we care about happens too early. And nothing else seems to matter. I, get, I mean, specific examples, Rock and Hogan from 18, which we'll probably talk about a little bit in a second or two here, and uh, Michaels and The Undertaker from WrestleMania 25. They were the best, they were the last thing people wanted to see. I mean, even uh, Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair, The Undertaker and Edge, who main evented that WrestleMania, went out there and had to work to get the crowd back into that. Right. And to their credit, they did but you could tell they got out there and the crowd was still a little burned out from the emotion of HBK and flair Uh, edge and taker kick it into a second gear and the crowd comes back and they start carrying. I mean, it's a great match, which helps things, but again, so pacing fillers, not a bad thing, but the following raw, this actually kind of gets forgotten a little bit, but the following night on raw, uh, Austin and The Rock have a rematch in a steel cage, which Austin wins following interference from Triple H, which sets them up as the two-man power trip. Right now, it's just the two of them and McMahon, but those two are two of the—they're two of the best ever. I mean, Triple H has undoubtedly earned that one of that uh, to be in that conversation.
2: Mm.
1: And don't get me wrong. There's there have been better, but he's you know people who make the argument. He's, a, he's certainly up there. And you've got those two now on the heel side as, again, the two best in the company, deciding it's all about us and we're going to win roughshod every, over everything. So I'm curious, for you as a fan, the two-man power trip, uh, old enemies, now now uh, you know on the same team, how was that as a presentation? Did you hate them as you were supposed to? I mean, they did some horrible things to get people to hate them
2: it didn't work it didn't work for me because not that they were like the two better enemies now that they were siding together they were in these uninspired matches with Kane and the Undertaker that really no one wanted to see at the time people were ready for kind of fresh faces in the main event scene and then you know we went from there to a brief feud with Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit with stone cold Steve Austin which produced some I mean, let's be honest, it produced some really great wrestling on T V, but then they went into uh the invasion storyline which was a complete and utter letdown. Um but no, I did not like the two man power trip because I was kinda like like I was not I was not a fan of those matches with Kane and the Undertaker because I think Undertaker, you know, he was still not he his return had still been fairly um I guess he was about a year into his return at that point, but to me, he hadn't really gotten to the level he would several years later in terms of his peak physical condition and his in-ring um, his in-ring um, abilities. I think it. I still think he hadn't hit it yet, and the matches weren't inspired. To me, I mean, some of the stuff with Stone Cold and Austin was amusing and funny, but overall, it was subpar. And I think this is kind of why we see WrestleMania 17 as the end of the Attitude Era, because it kind of peaked and everything kind of started declining, gradually declining at this point. Uh, And I mean, case in point, all the problems Austin started having with the product, I mean, I guess started happening about a year after this, but it kind of all went downhill after WrestleMania, if you remember.
1: Yeah, I do. And it did a little bit. Now I'm curious, uh, Your perspective on this point of view, the two-man power trip, again, it could almost be called ego-stroking, and if the internet had been around to the extent that it is today, if you got Austin and Triple H on the same team, there would certainly be accusations of that, and how accurate those are is up to individual interpretation, since I'm not a mind reader, but you had these two guys doing everything they could to be hated. I think part of the problem was you, you need a good baby face on the other side of that equation. You know, you need guys with some fire, who the crowd is into, to counterbalance the dastardly, sadistic heels. And you didn't have anybody at the time. You know, they beat up on the Hardys and Lita for a while. Then they had their stuff with Kane and The Undertaker. But I think the point had... I imagine the plan was to get them in a bit of an extended stuff with Jericho and Benoit, who the crowd was behind, who were great technically, and then injuries... Uh, Triple H with his quad and then Benoit with his neck not too long after that, uh, assuming I'm remembering correctly. And that kind of derailed some of the plans there. But was the lack of a top-level babyface opposite uh, the evil Austin Triple H a problem?
2: I think, I think Kane and Undertaker were just not – I think they were not at their peaks at their time, and I don't think they were up to the task to take – because The Rock was out, remember? The Rock was The Rock was on sabbatical until... Filming Scorpion
1: uh, King, wasn't he?
2: Right. Uh, he was filming Scorpion King. So he was out of it for the time being. And since Stone Cold had become a heel, um, you didn't really have guys who were ready to kind of uh, take up and, and sort of fill the role of Stone Cold in The Rock. Um, to me, Undertaker and Kane, to me they're... They're two all-time greats, but were you were you particularly inspired by what they were able to bring uh, toward the two-man power trip, Robert?
1: Initially, initially yes, I liked some of the presentation. Okay. One of my favorite moments is when they're beating up on the Hardys and Lita at when uh, sorry Triple H and Stone Cold are beating up on the Hardys and Lita. The Undertaker's music hits. It's on a Raw. I forget the I forget when it was, but the music for the Undertaker and Kane hit, and they walk down to the ring, the place goes a little bit unglued because it's Kane and the Undertaker and Triple H and Austin. I like the initial offering, kind of the thought of it, and then but once you got into it, it was just not quite what was expected at the very top of the card. I mean, as much as I'm a fan of the Undertaker, and I am, I'm a huge fan, he's never been the guy to actually carry the company. He's a very talented wrestler, a highly featured act, but he's never been the guy. The same way John Cena, Stone Cold, The Rock, Hulk Hogan, uh, Bret Hart, or Shawn Michaels, when they were kind of trading it, he's never been the guy. And there's kind of a reason for that. That's not a knock on him. Guys who can actually carry a company are few and far between, but it, it just, you know, it was great on initial offering, but as time went on, uh, the shine wore off of the apple pretty darn quick
2: I really think I mean it's it's hard to look back Because of what happened But you know I, I really wanted to see sort of Guys like Jericho and Benoit uh, Kind of get that spot um, Jericho especially Because you know Jericho Just seemed to, to me Jericho was the total package Just in terms of in-ring ability Charisma Personality and mic skills uh, And everything And I just um, I think under to me Undertaker was still in a rut at that point. He just I wasn't fond of the American badass gimmick which he was still entrenched in. Um, I was kinda tired of Kane and Undertaker just constantly turning on each other every other month. I just wasn't I I wasn't fond of that feud. I enjoyed what we got with um Jericho and, and Benoit on the two man power trip and that classic match uh they have for the tag team titles on Raw. Um, and uh, and then, you know, they had a subsequent feud that kind of didn't really have a satisfying payoff, and then we went right into Invasion, which, you know, it sucked.
1: Well, since you brought up the Invasion, let's go ahead and talk about it. Now, for anyone who is not familiar with what happened during the Invasion, after the WWE purchased WCW, they decided the best way to kind of capitalize on this was to have wrestlers from WCW show up and invade uh, the World Wrestling Federation. They hadn't quite gone to WWE at the time, but I'll refer to them as the Federation just for purposes of, so you know who I'm talking about. And they did that, and unfortunately, there was a minor problem as far as this went, because, here's one of the reasons, all of the big names from WCW, uh, Sting, Flair, Goldberg, Nash, Hogan, Hall, Scott Steiner, Steiner, Diamond Dallas Page, though he – I'll get more to him in just a second. He was an evasion. He was, but here's my point. They all had guaranteed contracts from uh, Turner Broadcasting when WCW was bought. Now, legally, what wound up happening was the corporate entity of Turner Broadcasting, after its merger with AOL into Time Warner, created a separate company – I forget what they called it – with the only purpose being – they will. Pay, this company paid the remainder of the contracts for those big-name wrestlers. Now, they were free to breach those contracts, sign a new one with uh, World Wrestling Entertainment, and go beyond their show. But they were certainly going to be for less money, given the nature of the contract structure within WCW. And the creative may or may not have been totally satisfying. Now, Page. Decided he wanted to be on television, be a wrestler, and he got the uh, stalking The Undertaker's wife gimmick. But everyone else, all of the big names, looked at the money that they were guaranteed by law for the next couple of years and what Vince McMahon was offering. Yeah. But they all looked at it and said, you know, I'll sit at home and I will collect money for free. And I don't blame them. But when WCW's initial invasion offering was... Lance Storm was the first guy out, wasn't he?
2: Uh yeah, he was.
1: Now, I like Lance Storm, don't get me wrong, but you know, it's not Goldberg, it's not Hogan, it's not Sting, it's not Flair. I mean, the biggest name we got uh probably Booker T and again DDP being revealed later. And it just you didn't have the names that you associated with WCW making that jump for the no. to be part of the invading force. And then Vince McMahon felt the need to uh, debut them and position them as lesser talents, and the gimmick for the rest of the thing became, well, which uh, WWF wrestler is going to switch sides and join WCW or as they later became the alliance after ECW joined up. Yep. Two major problems.
2: It was a sad enterprise. It was weird because at the time, like... Uh, they did the XFL. Vince McMahon started the XFL. It was a gigantic failure. Everyone said, "Okay, he's going to redeem himself with the, inv- you know, with the invasion of WCW." Um, this is the one angle. No one can screw up, and they screwed it up. Um, I think they should have waited until they had the names. But even if they had those big names, I'm not sure. It could, I'm not sure it could have worked. I'm not sure if they really, if Vince McMahon ever really would have been okay with um, setting like an imaginary WCW as his equal. Um, but what, whatever. I mean, what's it's a, it's a part of history. Uh, it it didn't it didn't really work. You had guys nonsensically turning to WCW. Or turning back to WWE, none of it. None of it. Including
1: Stone Cold Steve Austin, who had all those years hating WCW. That this is not just he kept it to himself either. Austin publicly hated WCW for the time he had spent there. I don't foresee his turning was the most nonsensical. His
2: his logic was that. Vince McMahon, he 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 had had this thing where he was really desperately trying to be Vince McMahon's buddy, and he felt slighted that Vince McMahon was trying to bring back The Rock. Is how they is how they presented it, as I recall. Yeah,
1: still, that's what, I and that's
2: just... how they kept Austin as the heel. But again, it's that's how it happened. It's it's disappointing, and it's just kind of it was the end of the Attitude Era. It was the end of the Monday Night Wars, and this is. And this is how things ended up
1: all right, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the names that they brought in uh from w c from e c w excuse me from e c w as well and you know, here's one of the crazy things that I think about from time to time. hindsight being what it is, and in some cases at the time, we all look at the invasion and kind of go, how did this you know what happened by the same token, you listen to the crowds when this is all going on i mean for A long time. I forget how many years, but for years, the Invasion special pay-per-view was the highest purchased uh, pay-per-view for WWE, WWF in its history. I mean, that is a record that stood until, I want to say, the last five years. Something like that. So for as many faults as there were, the crazy thing is, it was still drawing. Now just imagine how much you could have done if it had been done you know correctly for one So, uh, but as far as the introduction of ECW into that mix and the creation of the alliance was that uh, was that a move that resonated with you were you okay with that uh, as, as no, no.
2: I, I mean I liked ECW as much as the next guy but that was their Hail Mary because they were tanking the they were tanking the invasion angle um, so they thought bringing in ECW would have like breathed new life into it and the problem was all the trademarks and all the music and everything uh they didn't even own it i i mean because of all the financial issues Paul Heyman had with ECW like all of the all of the rights and everything were um were scattered to other companies so they didn't even have the rights to use some of the music in, in the ECW trademarks so there was a legal issue there that they had to scramble to work out it was all scrambling they were scrambling and a mad dash uh, to fix everything. Now that being said, um, it was it did bring in Rob Van Dam um, to WWE. He was the only
1: he was the only ECW guy who was presented as anything approaching competent, I believe.
2: Right. He because RVD had a star quality and it, and it he had an it factor, even though he's like not the most traditionally charismatic guy or, or, or he has he he has a certain unique type of charisma and ability that makes him very likable and makes you want to root for him and he had a unique style for the WWE um so you had RVD and he he made an impact very quickly Rhino uh Rhino was a was a pretty decent talent you know early on especially during the Invasion and he looked like yeah. he could have been a uh, you know maybe not Maybe not a main eventer, but it looked like he had potential uh, later down the line. Um, they also brought in Raven. They brought in Tommy Dreamer um, from ECW. They didn't bring in too many like ECW originals at the time, as I recall. I think Mike uh, Mike Awesome was there, but I think he had already gone to WW, WCW at that point. Awesome um, had like uh,
1: right. I believe Awesome was there for like the, when they debuted. And then for some, and then he was kind of inexplicably gone. I think he went back to Japan, or that was when his uh, addiction and health issues started adding up.
2: Yes, I think Just Incredible was in there, but he was always a jobber. And no anyway. one
1: cares about Just Incredible. Uh,
2: and I suppose
1: what kind of killed it for me, hindsight being what it is, is Stephanie McMahon now is in charge of ECW.
2: That was that was insane because I know. I remember the Dirt Sheet writers were so high on ECW being injected into this but um and and they kind of talked down how ridiculous it was to bring in Stephanie McMahon as the owner of uh ECW. And I got to tell you for the last 15 years I'm just so sick of the McMahons on TV. I've been I in 1998 it was fine, but then you brought on the whole McMahon family and I was already I was already over it in 2001. I never wanted to see the McMahons on TV again, really.
1: And yet now it's, you know, 13 years later and they're still going strong every Monday night there's one of them.
2: Exactly. All right. Now,
1: after the invasion which predictably ended with uh WWF's victory, uh they disbanded the alliance They hired back, I mean, they kept on a few people that they were interested in keeping on, and I believe it was the next night, they debuted the new co-owner of the World Wrestling Federation, Ric Flair. Now, McMahon had gone, this must have been some kind of a record, mind you, because Survivor Series, 2001, Vince McMahon, and the World Wrestling Federation, thanks to The Rock, defeat... The evil alliance, McMahon stands at the top of the ramp and is the conquering hero. Come Monday, everyone's back to booing him. He's That's got to be some kind of a record. And we get Ric Flair, co-owner of the company, because that was who uh, Shane and Stephanie had sold their shares to to finance their war effort. Uh, So Flair made out like a bandit, apparently, but... (laughs) I'm just curious, Vince McMahon going from being, you know, the guy that we're cheering because we support him and his product and we've had years of saying WCW's bad, boo, hiss, throw stuff at them, to just immediately returning to evil corporate chairman. Was that too much of same old, same old, back to the security blanket?
2: Yes. I cannot I'm, I never again, I was over the McMahons at that point it 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 had run its course and i was i wanted to see bad guys i wanted to see wrestlers uh as the bad guys i don't I'm, i think to me the whole wrestling authority figure thing as the ultimate bad guy to me it's played out and it's been played out for a long time because it worked in 1998 cuz it was fresh and different and you had you had Stone Cold Steve Austin, the ultimate rebel, the ultimate rule breaker. He, you know, he marches to the beat of his own drummer. Um, he's he's a hardcore uh, beer drinking redneck, and he doesn't you know he doesn't take any crap from the corporate you know suit wearing McMahon. Um, I feel like it, it was played out um, by that point, and I was over it. I, I wanted to see new I wanted to see new stuff, and to me, this is kind of how WWE failed to evolve. Like um, it was kind of like WCW got so stuck on the NWO, they didn't really know what to do after the glory days of the NWO. I think with WWE, their whole thing, you know, how do we how do we get away from the the authority, uh, Mr. McMahon as the bad guy? How do we move on from that and move into the new era? And I don't think they ever really figured it out.
1: It took them a long time until uh, I mean, they made some efforts Along the way, but it wasn't until John Cena came along that they finally And here's the crazy thing Even now, you've still got John Cena Now granted, he's clean cut All-American white meat babyface For want of a better phrase Versus Triple H and Stephanie McMahon And Kane and Randy Orton And Seth Rollins But it's functionally the same story You've just swapped out the players
2: Okay, but I mean, how what, what, what were your thoughts on, you know, bringing McMahon back as, as the villain at that point?
1: Uh, to me, it was just too much, uh, this is something I've realized in hindsight, mind you, I wasn't at the time going, oh man, how, come on, you spent these, the last, you know, three, four months building McMahon as a good guy, you're getting sympathy for him because his company has been threatened, his children are turning on him, his, this empire that he fought to build is crumbling, you've spent You've invested all this time turning this character into a good guy, and then in the space of 24 hours, you throw it out the window so we can cheer Ric Flair. Now, I like Ric Flair. I actually enjoyed him as wacky general manager opposite uh, McMahon. But it seemed like such a waste of all the time and effort you had put into turning McMahon into something more than evil chairman of the board. And then as soon as it's done, he's right back to being evil chairman of it just, it wasted energy, it wasted time, it was just such a, well, this has worked for so long, it's back to the security blanket type thing. And look, McMahon's a great heel, he's a wonderful heel, everybody hates Vince McMahon when he's on, when he's on screen, but you, there's just no change. I mean, it, it went back to being the same thing, I mean, Austin was, uh, I think, didn't he have an injury at this point, he was working more of a limited schedule, around uh, yeah. about this time?
2: I remember he was still having like back and neck issues at this point.
1: Yeah, and The Rock is is temporarily back.
2: He was champion at the time the uh, the invasion ended.
1: Yeah. Then I'm trying to remember how he lost the belt.
2: Um, he lost it to Kurt Angle and Unforgiven. Yeah. Then I think he won it back on Raw like a week or two later, and then he held it until uh, Vengeance in December and the one the one night tournament.
1: Yeah, uh, when Jericho came out on top with it. All right, um, but again, it was just, it was too much of the same thing, I think, is kind of what, in hindsight, I recognized that was my issue with it, was, you know, they refused to take a chance here and try McMahon as more sympathetic. You know, you can be a no-nonsense, good guy, authority figure, it's been proven to work, they just didn't seem to want to go that direction. And then again, Ric Flair and his antics opposite McMahon, which were amusing. Now, uh, the other, uh, the main one I want to talk about, there's two kind of main points, main characters from a villain standpoint I want to bring up here. One is uh, The Undertaker, because he shed the American badass and turned into what we kind of refer to as the big evil persona where he just beat the crap out of everybody and was all about respect. And I, you know, what you usually get from, from kind of the grumpy veteran heel persona. But, uh, you said you weren't a big fan of the biker gimmick when he was playing the good guy. How did you feel about him once he, you know, cut the hair shorter and decided he was going to just obliterate everyone in his path?
2: Um, this is around 2002. We're, we're looking at, right? Yeah. um, I think it was. I think it was okay. I think he was still extremely limited from an in-ring standpoint uh, around this time, and I wasn't really the biggest Undertaker fan around this time because um, I think he had gotten. I think his in-ring abilities. I think were still not really. I, I I think he was in a lot of mediocre feuds involving his wife Sarah, and then. Um, and then who else? And then um, DDP and Canyon. Um, he had. A, I, I mean, I thought that the feud and match with Ric Flair was decent. Um, I just didn't really like. I didn't really feel much of anything for the Undertaker. I didn't really feel that strongly for him. I think what I recall is people. The streak was building up at that point, and people wanted to see Undertaker go ten and zero more than they wanted to see like Ric Flair you know, get comeuppance for... um, I remember, like, uh, Undertaker, like, abducted and basically beat up David Flair on video. I remember they did that. Um,
1: Everyone wants to punch David Flair in the face. I think that got (laughs) taken more good guy. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, mean, it
2: wasn't really an effective... It was an effective... uh, It wasn't an effective heel turn for him. And also... After he became world champion, it was kind of like a, a very soft face turn, as I recall as well. And I think that kind of happened when he when he when he had the ladder match with uh, Jeff Hardy, where Jeff Hardy took such a beating that Undertaker was like, "Yeah, I respect you. I'll, I'll give you a hand for for taking that hell of a beating from me and still losing." And that and that was kind of the end of the Undertaker's heel heel turn, as I recall, uh, in 2002, right?
1: By and large, yeah, he wound up going full on babyface when he moved to SmackDown not too long after that, and feuded right. with Brock Lesnar. Right. Uh, but the other one I want to talk about for a little bit, uh, Kurt Angle, positioned. Kurt Angle was heel for a while, uh, got turned babyface kind of after the uh, September 11th attacks, in part because he had always been, you know, kind of the all-American good guy. He was a, a babyface for a lot of the invasion stuff uh, as a, as a loyal member of the federation and then uh went undercover based on their storyline became a heel uh turned on the alliance at the critical moment allowing the rock to get the win and then everyone kind of went back to disliking him. So I mean and Kurt Angle was a pretty effective heel in that role. I mean he depending on your preference he got better uh, later, I think uh, his stuff with Team Angle on SmackDown, when that was kind of his gimmick, was uh, probably some of the better stuff he's done.
2: Angle, but, Angle at, at like in 2002 and 03 was like incredible. Uh, he was he was unbelievable, without a doubt.
1: That might be one of the best couple of years of anyone's career. I mean, across the whole business, he was that good at everything.
2: I remember I, I think it was a mistake that they kind of cut his legs out during the invasion thing because he was really getting over uh as as the face to Steve Austin during that whole thing. And I feel like the way they I feel they kinda of missed the boat with that. But um after he did after he did the feud with Edge and they shaved his head, I feel like that was sort of his sweet spot where I feel like I think he was decent in 2000 and 2001, but I think he was really pe- in his peak years from like 2002, 2003, maybe, and part of 2004. And when uh-huh. and, and it's, and he started having all those neck issues, because of you know he worked that really he worked a really tough you know uh, a very fast paced style, and he was having those incredible matches week after week with the SmackDown Six, as we affectionately called them on the web at the time. But yeah, yeah I love I cuz you want to know why I liked Angle as a heel? Because he was getting more serious. He kind of shed the the more comedic aspects of his character and he was becoming a more he was becoming a more uh, you know, serious, more amener heel character. Um and I also loved that match he had with Benoit at the Royal Rumble because he beat him clean oh, and he used like a submission move. Like a heel yeah. hook, and I'm like, I'm like, this was not the same heel angle that, you know, needed like 20 run-ins and and help from Rikishi to beat The Rock. This was a, you know, this was a new Kurt Angle to me, and I loved this heel Kurt. I think this was the perfect heel Kurt Angle.
1: I love that match so much, and you're right, it's a clean ending. I believe Team Angle's out there for a while, but they don't play into the match at all.
2: No, uh, no, they were they were uh, ejected. Yeah, and it's just
1: Benoit Angle going blow for blow and hold for hold, and you get two wrestlers of that quality, and you're gonna get uh, just magic every time.
2: In the build up, I was really hardcore on the build up to Lesnar, Angle at the time. Um, Unfortunately, I think the problem was they had all that focus on Hogan McMahon was really treated as the main event for their WrestleMania. and yeah. then of course you had, you know, the bungled shooting star press and all that and uh, I just I just wish Ho- Hogan McMahon was not on that WrestleMania.
1: Well, let's talk about Lesnar for a little bit here and because he debuts uh, right after WrestleMania 18 right. and crushes like three guys. Uh Maven, Spike Dudley, and I believe Al Snow was the other guy. Right. He comes in the Yeah. And Lesnar just I mentioned this, this got brought up, I don't remember if I mentioned it or not, but Brock Lesnar seems to be the first kind of true monster heel that the World Wrestling Federation or World Wrestling Entertainment or whatever has really ever kind of understood how to utilize properly. And Brock Lesnar debuts, becomes exclusive to SmackDown, and is a monster. I mean... Yeah, Brock. You know, six four, two hundred and seventy, two hundred and eighty pounds, legitimately, mind you, and moves like a guy half his size. I mean, it, there's no question as to why the company decided to strap the rocket to his back because I mean, he looks like he was made for professional wrestling.
2: Right. Um but. he was he he you know he had a pure athletic background. He wasn't just this wasn't just some bodybuilder, you know that thought, "Hey, I can make some money. I can go into wrestling and make some money." He was he was a top-class um collegiate wrestler. He he was a Division 1 uh national wrestling champion. Um and he decided to go into pro wrestling cuz that was that was where the money for a guy like him was uh at the time. He had he had an athletic background, and I think that speaks of how well he was able to move in the ring and why he had, you know, he wasn't like your, the typical power guy where he actually mixed in some hold, some holes and psychology to all those matches. Like, what I really liked about his stuff with The Rock was that it, it looked like everything he would do to The Rock kind of made sense from from a guy his size that, you know, was more of a power type, he has more of a power-type moveset, but he was still mixing in some more technical holds into those matches. And that's what I enjoyed about Lesnar. Um, he he had really the perfect build-up uh, run to his world title run as a heel. Um, I think after that, I think they kind of uh, lost his momentum a little bit. But I enjoyed his, his feud with Kurt Angle for the most part.
1: Well, they wound up turning him face, which it- – the crazy thing about Brock is he's a great baby face, which is odd right. for someone who is such a pure ass kicker as his presentation is, for him to be such an effective baby face. But when Paul Heyman turned on him, sided with the big show, and they wound up going with him as a good guy instead, it was still great. But yeah, his stuff with Angle, I mean, his 60-minute Iron Man match with Angle on SmackDown, uh, to this day, one of the top three best free television matches of all time.
2: Uh, that was a great match. Um, I never really liked... I think my problem with that was um, they turned him face against the Big Show, and while I liked the Big Show, I don't think he had really worked up worked up to his better level at that point. I think kind of much like The Undertaker. Um, yeah. I was just so disinterested when he won the world title. Um I don't know, I just, I couldn't buy hit a guy like Big Show beating Brock Lesnar, if that Which makes sense. It's crazy
1: to say, considering that Big Show is, you know, seven feet tall and 500 but, but pounds, no, you still you look at the know thing. Because
2: me at that point, Big Show was kind of a, to use an MMA term, he was kind of a lame duck journeyman, you know? He was yeah. never, uh, he came in, he had a, he had a, he had a kind of a, made a little bit of a main event run in 1999 but like he'd never he was always kind of a mediocre kind of middling talent. He he got opportunities in the main event where I don't think he was really excelling. I feel he was always kind of not in the best of shape. Um and and I felt in the ring he was limited. Um but he did get better over the years. I just think he wasn't there yet around that time.
0: Yeah,
1: it seemed like the main point, it it was this odd thing on SmackDown around that time where the focus was to kind of, it wasn't so much on when Brock was a good guy. The focus seemed more to be on Brock finally getting revenge on Paul Heyman than whoever Paul Heyman's stooge was at the time. And when Kurt Angle came over, you had a lot more legitimate competition between Lesnar and Angle uh, than you did he, because there were a couple of other guys in there. Uh, I forget who it was, uh, but there were a couple of other people who Heyman kind of used as a shield between himself and Brock. And it wasn't until Angle that you actually kind of got to the point where it was about Brock and Angle as opposed to Brock and Heyman. Don't get me wrong, it was still kind of about Brock and Heyman, uh, including the famous cage match where he got his hands on Paul and Kurt couldn't open the cage door, uh, which, if you saw a lot, was hilarious. being
2: into... I felt like angle had really gotten to another level at that point. um I felt like he was really peaking as a performer in every area, and then he kind of had the setback with the neck issues that I think have still been plaguing him to this day and i feel I feel in two thousand three he he definitely rushed his return um he should have taken more time off and should have just been more disciplined about getting healthy and getting. 100% and um I don't know I feel like I feel like Angle and WWE definitely rushed his uh return in 2003 from neck surgery.
1: Uh, now, those of you who are listening might wonder why so much of this particular discussion around this time frame is focused on what's been going down on the SmackDown side of things. Now, around this now, at this point in time, the WWE had what they referred to as the brand split. Raw and SmackDown were treated as completely separate entities. They had their own pay-per-views, they had their own rosters, they had their own championships, all that fun stuff. And we have been speaking pretty much exclusively for the last 15-20 minutes about stuff that happened on SmackDown. Right. Now, why, you might be asking yourselves listening to this, or if you're not familiar with this time period at least, why are these uh, two nice gentlemen discussing SmackDown and completely ignoring the flagship program for World Wrestling Entertainment in the form of Monday Night Raw? is it Yes, because if anyone who was watching Monday Night Raw in this particular, for this, you know, three year stretch, it wasn't good. It was not good. You had their version of the NWO, which didn't work because fans, because WWF fans do not want to boo Hulk Hogan. I don't care when, where, how fans of this promotion. Do not boo Hulk Hogan. Presenting him as a heel was a huge waste of time, but he debuted as heel with the NWO, that being Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. And they were supposed to be booed and nobody booed I mean he's the listen to the crowd reaction at WrestleMania eighteen. Hogan's the baby face, Rock is the heel. I don't care who's working what style, that's what the crowd says and that's how it was. They finally turned him. I think the next night, uh, while well, the crowd insisted on still cheering for the guy, and they wound up turning him uh, very, very soon thereafter. Officially, many, and, uh,
2: and then he he beat uh, Face Triple H for the world title at Backlash. Yeah, now uh, This was when you know uh, Undertaker was in the middle of his Big Evil phase, and he won the world title. And then he won the world title from Hulk Hogan.
1: Uh, he held it. Yeah. Uh, Taker held it for a little bit. He dropped it to The Rock, who dropped it to Lesnar, uh, right. for those of you keeping track of the chronology. Incidentally, that triple threat between The Undertaker, Kurt Angle, and The Rock uh, for the belt, where he loses, where The Rock wins it. One of your favorites? Well, what, I mean, there's not a whole lot of story, uh, but it's a fun match from those three guys.
2: Um, I, I didn't really like the match all that much. Uh, I just kind of... Uh, I just kind of see it as a way they had to get the title on rock to kind of, um, I remember, like, Austin had, he had, he had taken his ball and gone home at this yeah. point because he was so disheartened and, uh, pissed off with the, pro- with the way the product had gotten, and he, I think he had some legitimate gripes, um, but he had, yeah. um, and they had brought, and they brought the rock back to kind of save the day, basically, um, and it was okay. I think it, it was kind of after the brand split. It was kind of like Raw sucked. SmackDown was SmackDown was really good. Um, just because I think that was SmackDown was the show that Paul Heyman was booking, right? Yes, he was booking SmackDown for. He and he ended up handling the creative side of SmackDown for a couple of years, and um, it was too, the brand extension never worked to me. I just I didn't like the match that much, but I saw okay. Get the title on The Rock, and he'll drop it to Brock Lesnar. There you go. Again, Uh, I was not a fan of The Undertaker heel run or his title run. Uh,
1: uh, In the same vein, then, brief question. He debuts on SmackDown, uh, wins a triple threat with Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit to become number one contender to Brock Lesnar's title in his SmackDown debut. His face run against Lesnar's heel run, uh, which included one of my favorite Hell in a Cell matches, Actually, uh, Taker and Brock's, uh, not my all-time favorite, but I think it's certainly one of the, it's easily top five, if not top three, my opinion. Uh, did he play better as a baby face against, uh, the monster Lesnar? I,
2: I, I, I like, I think the Hell in a Cell match was okay. I didn't like any of their matches before it. I think they made, I think it took too much away from Lesnar, uh, and, and him being a monster heel, um, I think that the Hell in a Cell match got it right. Um, but other than that, I wasn't really a fan of their feud. And I feel like, again, I feel Undertaker was not in the best place to uh feuding with um, at the main event level. I just don't think he was good enough around this time. Okay. All right,
1: but on the Raw side, once Brock Lesnar became exclusive to SmackDown, Eric Bischoff, general manager of Raw, uh, re- brings back the World Heavyweight Championship, the big gold belt. presents it to to Triple H, and this is round... I mean, Evolution forms not terribly long after this. I think he was hooked up with Flair before that. And for fans of the product around this time, there's not a whole lot positive that they can say about what goes on on Monday Night Raw for a while. Now, on the one hand, I understand kind of the logic here. Triple H, as a heel champion... When he finally does drop that belt, uh, uh, really drop it, mind you, at WrestleMania 20, the fans are rabid for it. They want anyone but Triple H, which is old-school, kind of southern-booking mentality, and it worked great. I mean, Triple H to this day is still hated because of that these couple of years here, but at the same time, so much of it just got so boring and repetitive. I mean, you mentioned the Royal Rumble match between uh, Chris Benoit and Kurt Angle. Great match. Right. If you need a perfect Same contract, night. Well, what did we
2: have to see on the Raw side? Yeah. <laughs>
1: if you need a contrast, if you want to understand in a microcosm the differences between Raw and SmackDown at a point in time, on that same card, I believe right before the Benoit-Angle match, for the World Heavyweight Championship, you had Triple H and Scott Steiner. Now... Scott Steiner, if he's motivated and in shape and has his head kind of all all there, is a f- fine, fine wrestler. Unfortunately, he uh, Steiner blows up in the first five to ten minutes, can do nothing for the rest of the match but throw suplexes and say, "Heh." I mean, it's so that match is so bad. Triple H, in the midst of this monster heel run, with Evolution at his side, where everyone wants to see Triple H lose and go away, everyone, this crowd cheers for Triple H over Scott Steiner. That's how bad that match was. And if you don't believe me, everybody, if you have the network, look it up. If you don't have the network, I, you can probably find it on YouTube. But just, Or you can just take my word for it and save yourself the bleeding eyesore. sword. I remember that through match. this
2: period was just sort of how stagnant Triple H's heel run was, and how stagnant he was as the world champion. Kind of the same promos, the same type of matches every month, and the, the feuds were were. I mean, we you know we we had to deal with Katie Vick. Um, in in I remember well, had I, to... had the thing where Kane was demasked uh, after that. Um, I when Booker T had turned face and was and was uh, becoming a main event-level opponent for Triple H, but they um, they messed that up, too. And then they made Goldberg his foil, and it, it was none of it was inspired, none of it was worth watching. I was just hardcore into SmackDown at that point, and just everything SmackDown was doing.
1: Yeah, you're preaching to the choir there, um, partially because I didn't get Raw, but I got SmackDown, and you're darn right I watched it every Thursday night. All right, now this The whole Raw main event scene Doesn't really get any life Kind of breathed in The only good thing I will say this Here's my caveat The good thing on Raw From right around this time period Is Shawn Michaels and Triple H Because their feud kicks off uh, SummerSlam A uh, little before that When Triple H turns on him But they have their match at SummerSlam uh, 2001 I believe Might be two it was
2: 2002. Or,
1: 2002 Thank you and a uh, great match. Sean is back in the saddle and Sean and Triple H have some just great matches. Now uh, their Hell in a Cell match. Okay, I'll I'll give you that one's a tad uh, gratuitous. It sucked. It sucked. <laughs> it's so long. That match it's, is what an hour. I'm sorry, I'm
2: not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to, you know, I got to call a spade a spade. The 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 match sucked. It was one of the worst Hell in a Cells I've ever seen.
1: Uh, I, you know, I have to rate it low. It's sad, and again, part of the problem is the length. It's, again, it's about an hour. That's a chunk of, that's a pretty big chunk of time. And it just doesn't quite click the way some of their other stuff did. And, uh, I mean, this is, yeah, it's one of the worst. I mean, it's not uh, Kettle from Hell bad, but it's probably about as bad as Orton and the Undertaker, which was not good either. Yeah, Randy. Ugh, which I'll get to in just a second. But and so kind of the one bright spot is the Triple H, Shawn Michaels thing. Uh, they have Evolution going at this point in time with uh, great theme music. That's about all I can say good uh, because Randy Orton. I hate Randy. I really do. Oh, God. I, I just hate him <laughs> so much. It's irrational, too. I just don't like him. But you get a little bit of life kind of breathed into Raw when Chris Benoit jumps over from SmackDown. Uh, prior to WrestleMania 20. And uh, you get some shake-ups on the SmackDown side as well. Not quite as good. Uh, Brock drops the belt to Eddie and then leaves. Uh, Eddie and Angle go on to have a pretty darn good feud with super-serious Kurt Angle and uh, fun-loving, happy-to-be-alive and champion Eddie Guerrero. But uh, the Raw side of things, it really was just... It was not a good time to kind of be watching Raw. I mean, it was... If you liked the presentation of Triple H and Evolution, I'll say this. If that was your thing, gangbusters. You were all over it. If you weren't, not a whole lot worth uh, talking about. i got to right be now. honest.
2: In 2004, I think Raw kind of turned around.
1: Yeah. Well, again, that was kind of the time when, uh, again, Brock left. Benoit kind of came over. Uh, the brand extension was, it wasn't quite as
2: strict. It wasn't few, what it
1: was. No, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't what it I had. been.
2: it was always it was always flawed to me because I feel like it it was sort of their answer to the lo- to the loss of a you know WCW. We'll try and have we'll compete with ourselves, and it was it was weird. And um, the
1: supreme irony being that when SmackDown starts winning, uh, Vince decides we have to do something about this.
2: Right, right. Um, I I don't know. I, I feel like one. Well, you would have one show that was good, and then and then you would have one show that was sort of like like really just terrible to watch, and um and then after a while they had just completely forgotten, uh they had forgotten about the brand extension completely, but they were still they were still presenting everything. Um, it got to a point in where 2006 where no no pay per view was basically brand extended, but they were still running three. Separate shows between ECW, uh, SmackDown, and Raw, and you had three. You had world titles for each one, and it didn't. It never worked. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, it got really. Uh, but I've mentioned them a couple of times now, so we have to talk about, and with good reason, we have to talk about Evolution. And for those of you who don't know, that was a stable, kind of the last really effective stable in uh, the world wrestling entertainment, of Triple H, Ric Flair, Batista, and Randy Orton and they ruled the roost on raw everything was about them all the time they had all the titles at one point and very kind not of all reminiscent the titles. of at ha-
2: at one point they had the world heavyweight title they had the tag titles and in the intercontinental like okay, so in they early- did not
1: have the women's championship
2: right or the or the WWE title or the or the US title
1: uh, but uh when they were when they were on top was really when they were when the brand split and meant something and the others were kind of exclusive
2: to yeah. Smackdown. But yeah.
1: you've got them and they're on top of the world, and it's very kind of reminiscent of the four horsemen. Uh kind of updated a little bit in terms of presentation and uh whatnot, but that that's kind of the feeling they were trying to invoke. So for you as a fan, uh how was it how were evolution as heels? I mean,
2: Apart from Um, the fact that
1: they were in every segment and you hated seeing them, but...
2: Mixed bag. I think... I think... I I wasn't really a big fan of Triple H as the ace and figurehead. Um, I wasn't really a big fan of Batista, but I got to be honest, at the time I was kind of into Randy Orton and I definitely thought he had potential. And I think... I liked his Intercontinental title run because at the time i think he had finally given some stability to the intercontinental title um and, and it bec- and it made it a more prestigious title again because i think at that time the the intercontinental title was not it was just kind of getting passed around like every every 2 weeks and i think orton gave the belt stability he started you know winning feuds and i enjoyed his run as title and i felt like when Orton was in Evolution, I thought he was a rising star, and I thought he was kind of on his way. And uh, I think Orton, um, when he had the feud with Cactus Jack, I felt he had gotten to another level. And I, lo- I enjoyed the Legend Killer run. I'm sorry, but I did. I don't
1: apologize. If you enjoyed it, you enjoyed it. Again, I, I, the
2: I only think thing... Orton was at, at Evolution's peak. I think Orton was the best part of it Okay. until they messed up. Uh, him winning the world title and turning face. I think they that whole thing was...
1: Yeah, uh, just personally speaking, the only thing I've ever enjoyed that Randy Orton has ever been involved with was his uh, no-holds-barred match with uh, Mick Foley. Right. That's it. Now, your mileage may vary. Plenty of people like the guy. Just me. Don't. Nothing he did before that. Nothing he did since that.
2: And Do I know Orton know? has a reputation for being a douchebag and things behind the scenes. But I, I've also, I've been, I was a pretty constant or, Orton fan throughout uh, the years, from from like 2004 through, I guess, I guess we'll say around 2009.
1: Okay. Now, I, I will say this, to your point about him bringing stability to the IC title, I'd argue, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to completely disregard my point, that title has not meant as much since he has not been uh, in and around it. Once he dropped the belt, uh, Shelton Benjamin, I think, who had a lengthy run himself, but
2: Wait, look, that, no, he no, dropped, no, he didn't drop it to Shelton Benjamin. He dropped no, it no, to Edge.
1: Yeah, he dropped it to Edge. Edge and Jericho had a feud. Then, belt, then Benjamin beat Jericho. Okay, right. Yeah, I got I my chronology wrong. But I would argue that since his departure from that title scene, that belt has just done nothing but decrease in value.
2: I would I would agree.
1: I mean, and some of that's on the people. Some of that's on. You know, the booking and all uh, that I fun
2: stuff. Orton, but... Orton I think Orton was at the time I think he was the best intercontinental champion in years.
1: Yeah. Uh I'd agree with that. Again, I don't like him. That doesn't mean he sucks.
2: Right. He was a he was a good heel for the title. I think he was something like the title had been had been missing for quite some time.
1: Yeah. Well, evolution breaks up. Uh okay. Uh Evol- they don't break up. They boot they give Randy Orton the boot. Right. And we get a very slow turn on Batista becoming a babyface.
2: face. my work,
1: wonderfully executed, by the way. There's a reason Batista main evented WrestleMania 21 and John Cena did not. Right. And that's uh, during that time period, Batista was about as hot as a babyface as you could possibly. Right. I think I, people.
2: It was kind of like in wrestling. There are moments where people want to see. Something where you want to see something happen, and you see it kind of unfolding. And sometimes wrestling will give that to you. And when wrestling does that, wrestling can be one of the most entertaining, most um, amazing, inspiring things you can ever watch. And I, and I think, Winfrey, if you're a fan, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think the reason the Batista feud works so well is because we Started it seeing unfold, and we saw we we started seeing it basically snowball, and it reached its appropriate conclusion. And when wrestling can do that properly, it's one of the greatest things ever. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, completely. Now, since we've kind of jumped ahead towards WrestleMania 21 here in terms of chronology, I I'm curious about again Batista kind of becomes the man on the Raw side of things. Over on the SmackDown side, you have. A young man who debuts with the gimmick of ruthless aggression, because that was the tagline that Vince McMahon wanted associated with his product. And he molds that into, courtesy of a Halloween episode, I believe, or a Thanksgiving one, because they kind of did the same thing. Uh, This particular young man dresses up as Vanilla Ice and performs a somewhat entertaining rap, and things start snowballing. And John Cena, as we kind of know him today, is born right about then. Now, Cena's first presentation as this kind of uh, rapping street thug from Massachusetts heel persona, he got under people's skins a lot of the time. And I'm curious for you as a fan, as a fan of SmackDown around this same period of time, John Cena as as a heel, uh, how did that work for you as a fan?
2: I I really enjoyed when, when Cena had kind of when he when he started owning the the heel rapper gimmick, it was entertaining it, and it worked. Um, I feel like it, and it's unfortunate because I feel like they never really let him loose as the heel rapper um, until like he he was a heel and he was and he and he had a couple prolific feuds, but it wasn't really until after he turned face that WWE started pushing him hard, as I recall. Yeah.
1: Yeah, his face turn uh, around WrestleMania 20, right. I believe, because that was when because he, he was on that he was show he beat the, the big show. I think,
2: I think it was like late 2003, basically right after he had a match with Kurt Angle at No Mercy 2003 that he was the heel, and I think he was it was just the point where he was just so over with the fans that they basically had to uh, turn him face. Um, yeah. He had a couple prolific like he feuded with. Eddie Guerrero, he feuded with Kurt Angle. That was fun. But like he was getting, his raps were just getting all these big cheers that they basically uh, had to turn him face. And that is when WWE started just let, uh, they put him on his rocket and they just blasted off.
1: And we're still traveling on that same rocket today, 10 years later.
2: <laughs> right. And I think after they turned him face, like, they, like he was still carrying the rapper gimmick. I think through 2004 and parts of 2005 but um he kind of shed that once Twitter, that they he they basically they basically eliminated it completely cuz they still weren't um TVPG yet at this time.
1: Yeah, I think it was after he moved to Raw that they kind of started phasing that out. Uh but uh, so him as a heel, yeah, he's like you said, he just got so over that uh and the Rock has mentioned this when he talks about his Hollywood fate, his phase Hollywood rock when he would do rock concerts. Where, right. During his songs, he would insult wherever he was, and they would boo. But then, immediately following the line, after they've booed, they'd all kind of look around and go, yeah, but that was pretty fun.
2: Yeah, I think that was kind of the thing. His, rap, his raps were actually, qu- you know, quite funny and entertaining. He was just so entertaining that people started uh, liking him. Um, and even... Even on the net, fans were getting into Cena. In fact, when Cena was like jobbing to the Undertaker and Angle in his bigger matches, people were disappointed. Um, people because they were seen as the old guard, and people wanted to see fresh faces like Cena getting moved up the ladder. How 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 uh, ironic that would be a few years later.
1: Yeah, no kidding. But Cena, once he turns face, his opposite number on SmackDown. Uh, JBL's version of the million-dollar man which is functionally what it was boy was he hated I remember I watched at the time I hated JBL I hated him I mean it's irrational I mean it's you know media presentation it's a scripted show I shouldn't feel that level of hatred towards a character but I wanted him gone I wanted him off my screen I didn't want to hear his voice I didn't want to see him in promos I didn't want to see him weasel out of another match But I couldn't stop looking because I knew at some point somebody's going to beat this guy. And it wound up being John Cena. But JBL as kind of the updated million-dollar man, which is, again, functionally what he was, uh, his time as champion of SmackDown, his time as the king heel of that brand, uh, who would have thought I mean, the guy went from a member of the acolyte to suit-wearing limousine riding JBL. I mean, it was one of the most crazy transformations that I can remember.
2: It was it was a good transformation. He played he played that gimmick and character very well. Um, you know, he had this kind of like you know he, George Bush was the president uh, at the time, and I think and I and he was a polarizing president. And I yeah. think j b l kind of built off of that and kind of saw ways he could milk that for heat uh and he did it well um did I like him as the top heel? No, I do not. I don't think he was ever i don't think he was ever good enough to be the world champion or top heel Robert, and I feel like his if you look at the numbers, I feel like the numbers would support that.
1: Well, it was a tough time for Smackdown part of the problem there was you when know, we're talking. Uh, chronologically, from WrestleMania 20 to 21. Part of the problem was Brock Lesnar left, and he was a fixture of SmackDown. Uh, that was that was his home. He had been there. He had appeared on Raw a couple of times, but that was his show because he was with Paul Heyman, and that was and he left, and it left a void. I mean, you still had Kurt Angle for a while, and Eddie Guerrero was champion, and there was you know, there was some good stuff, but. There was a massive void as far as the top heel. I mean, Angle wound up taking time off, didn't he? Or he moved over to Raw, I can't remember which one.
2: Yeah. He he took he took like the summer off, but he was he was actually the heel authority figure throughout the summer.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember. They made him GM. And Eddie didn't want to be champion for a long period of time. He felt he couldn't handle the pressure. And let's face it, as the fiery babyface, there's only so far you can go, even from a narrative standpoint. It it seems more like JBL was a beneficiary of the opportunity presented. They needed a great heel, and the people who knew JBL apparently went to bat for him, uh, apparently Eddie did, said, I think this can be the guy to carry us. And I think he benefited from just the structure of SmackDown at the time and the fact that one of their key components for the following year left at WrestleMania 20.
2: I recall SmackDown wasn't very inspired at this time when he was on top. It felt like there had been a switch to me.
1: Well, you had kind of a revolving door of challengers for him uh, in the forms of Eddie trying to get the belt back. Booker T moved over in the draft.
2: And then you had uh, Big Show, and I didn't big care. Show. I feel I I feel like they weren't really light, lighting it up either. I just feel that their styles together just didn't really match. Uh, it
1: was so slow. And I don't mean... You don't have to be balls-to-the-wall action in a match. I've mentioned that. There's a difference between paced and methodical and slow and plotting. Show and JBL, slow and plotting. Uh, Right. uh, He had a match with The Undertaker, but The Undertaker wound up in a feud with Heidenreich. Boy, that was... And then Randy Orton moved over, and they kind of resumed their feud. And it was just... uh, Kind of unfortunate as far as that went. Because, again, I don't like Orton, but... No, it was SmackDown wasn't quite the same at this time and Paul Heyman wasn't in charge anymore and some of all of the it seems like all of the wrestlers who got buzz on SmackDown during this time, uh, Edge, Benoit, wound up just getting drafted to Raw where they didn't know how to use them.
2: Right. I don't know. I don't want to talk about Edge uh, the Rated R Superstar.
1: Oh, okay. yes. that's actually next because boy did he hit gold with that. Right. I mean, Edge. Prior to that, Edge was a mid card guy. I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion. I mean, he was upper mid card talent. That's where kind of he had been performing. That's where everyone had him. And some of that, and he was over with fans to that point. You know, they wanted to see him, or they boot. You know, for, throughout throughout his career previously, they'd been interested, but you know, they weren't rabid for the guy really. And then he turns heel. Uh, a lot, it hooks up with Lita in, I believe, every sense in <laughs> Giggity. And Christens himself the Rated R Superstar to kind of combat the. They weren't TVPG necessarily, especially to the extent they would turn in a couple of years. But Cena was certainly more family friendly at this point in time. And Edge positioned himself as his, as the polar opposite oh. of John Cena in every way possible. And it turned him from a good hand at the upper mid card level, who you could slot into a main event if you needed a guy, to a completely bankable superstar. I mean, it, it was absolutely amazing to watch him do. uh
2: he—they really, Edge really benefited from the heel turn, and it brought, and he worked so hard, and um, and, and he had the whole thing with Matt Hardy and Lita, but. They turn, He turned that, that whole thing, into kind of like um, the backbone of his whole massive... I mean, he had already been a heel, but he turned that into the backbone of his sort of the rated-R superstar. And he he re, he used it really well to help himself get over. And I remember, like, he worked that character so well. And then he was the ultimate opportunist. He had the money in the bank. He used the money in the bank to easily take the world title from John Cena. And the numbers I, I recall, Cena was already getting stagnant at that point, and people were getting kind of just sick of Cena's act and his more sanitized act. And I yeah. think people thought, people thought Edge was a breath of fresh air, and I feel like the numbers support that. And then they um, they they just uh, they dropped out his title lane a few weeks later to John Cena, I feel like they really just should have given Edge the ball and let him run with it, you know, through to WrestleMania and just see what happens. Um, He was, I feel like he he had really caught on to something at the time. but And he, you know, he did have successful um, main event runs after that, but I feel like that was kind of a sweet spot for him where I feel like, again, you know, when I talk about wrestling, you know those moments where you kind of see those things you want to see happen, and when wrestling gives it to you, it's like so, it's so amazing, and um, it can be downright orgasmic. But when you see things like what they did with Edge in early two thousand two thousand six, it's like what the hell, man! It's like it's right there. Uh, why, why are you messing it up? But whatever.
1: Now, I hear what you're saying. I mean, like you said, Cena was already getting a little bit of the, the backlash that would become famous. There's I read an interesting thought somewhere that actually without that brief run by Edge and Edge's opposition to John Cena that would go on for years, that was, a, what did the writer refer to it, as the release valve for all of the anti-Cena sentiment that was going on at the time. We got, you know, a month of edge mm-hmm. on top of the card uh as the smarmiest of slimy heels right I mean he looked the part he acted the part
2: he was and, and he was something different, and I feel like he we was still a good worker. Seen like that. he was always a good worker um i feel like I feel like he w- he was a better he was a better worker to me than triple h Um, and even The Undertaker. He was something different that I feel like the main event scene had really needed for a long time.
1: Yeah, of course, to kind of compound this issue around about this time, the WWE seemed to be churning out... Their new talent that they were debuting all seemed to look, wrestle, act, and talk the same. So anything that was different was just glorious, even if it was just because it was different. And Edge, of course, had a bunch of other stuff going for him as well at the time. Again, uh, good to great talker, uh, really good wrestler. I mean, just so much good stuff about Edge. And again, the polar opposite of John Cena. And when you can get a rivalry that features two guys who are so opposite, but who mesh so well together in presentation, it's great. I mean, I'd rank Edge and Cena. They had a lot of matches. It, there's some longevity and some history between those two when you actually look at the time frame. But overall, I'd rank what those two could do up there with some of the other great rivalries. I mean, uh, Sean and Brett, Austin and McMahon, uh, Dusty and Flair. They had that kind of polar opposite mentality but meshed so well together in presentation. I mean, it was just—it was great when those they two They definitely,
2: together. I think those two brought, usually brought out the best in each other and they had I think they they had some of their better main event matches with each other except except that uh the Royal Rumble 2006 match and and I guess some of their later matches uh, around 2009 um you know when you had Vicky Guerrero and all that nonsense but uh 2006 I was really into the Cena edge
1: uh, it was one of the best things going in wrestling I mean I don't say that lightly All right, let me see. I
2: agree.
1: We've talked a little about... Okay, I'm curious as to... We talked about Randy Orton as part of Evolution. Okay. Uh, When he was a singles wrestler, Orton as... uh, Go ahead and dovetail this into his uh, Viper slash Intermittent Explosive Disorder persona, if you'd like. But Randy Orton kind of as the heel on his own, which is ironic because he's never really been on his own. He carted his dad around with him for a while and then... Uh, he formed Legacy with uh, Minnie DiBiase, who was awful, and Cody Rhodes, who is stupendous. But his, pre- you know, Randy Orton as the kind of cold-blooded, calculating viper and the uh, intermittent explosive disorder guy. How was, how was it that time of his career for?
2: Him? I remember. I I feel like Orton. Like, um, Orden was was kind of, in 2006 and 07, I remember remember in 2006 he was having disciplinary issues, he was having wellness policy issues.
1: He got Um, sent home from a couple of tours, didn't he? I remember specifically one European one he got sent home from.
2: Right. Um, I, I think in 2007 he was kind of transitioning back into the main event scene, and he was becoming... Um, an opponent for Cena I remember they had a match at SummerSlam That was actually quite good And I think was probably their best match Best match to date And I feel I don't know To me that kind of restored Orton's reputation in my mind um, It was one of his best matches in a long time And I feel like he really carried his end of the match Really well And then he kind of Started punting people in the head, um, and that really worked. He went after John Cena's father, and he had. Then I think Cena got injured, and they made they made Orton the champion. He started feuding with, and I think he was his own. He 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 was on his own at that point. He was feuding with Triple H. He was feuding with Shawn Michaels, and then he and then he um feuded. That was transitioned to Triple H in 2008. And then he was out, and then he was out for a little while, and then he came back and formed Legacy. But I, I feel like in 2007-08, Orton was really. I think he was getting better, and I think he he was working. I think he worked good matches at that point, and I think he he had rebuilt himself very well. Um, and I enjoy, I enjoyed his matches with Cena, to be honest. His matches with Triple H, not so much. Cena, I in two thousand seven. 2008. I really enjoyed all of his work with.
1: Him. It's odd because you look at what they were able to do together in that time frame, and you kind of contrast it with what they're doing now, and you wonder, because I, I'll be darned if I can, uh, you know, point to what is different. But, but there's mean, certain, there's something there's missing.
2: Gone stale. You know, it's it's stagnant. That too. Like um, all right. Like look at look at uh, Sting and Ric Flair. King and Ric Flair had a lot of matches over the years. Yeah. Look at some of their matches, like, uh, look at they, they had a few matches in 95-96. Those were not as good as some of their matches earlier in their careers, you know? Um, yeah. And they kind of got, they get into a re- routine. They got into an obvious routine, and they kind of, I'm not saying like, you know, they're kind of going through the motions, and they can't, And and look, you cannot deny that a a huge contingent of fans are sick of Cena and Orton, and they've kind of they've both been kind of been doing the same thing over and over again. And you know, fans want fans want to see something different. Um, I think that's mainly what it is.
1: All right, uh, I think the last guy kind of on my list here, and I hope I have the timing right. I believe I do. But going into WrestleMania 25. Uh, I believe uh, after 24, going into 25, somewhere around that area, we get. I also uh, attended this event. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you did. Uh, in
2: fact, in fact, I was. I have been working for 411 a couple years at this point, and I was I was actually credentialed by WWE to attend the event.
1: Now, my question here is uh, Chris Jericho. He at this point in time, he was doing his. Uh, the last honest man gimmick, uh, which was, I mean, the kind of the impetus for that, his feud with Shawn Michaels, which I think is probably the best feud that, uh, the WWE has done in a long time. I mean, those two together, what they were saying what they were doing. It was uh, just absolutely glorious to watch. Erico
2: got He, you know, we talk about guys getting to another level. Um, Jericho, throughout his tenure like he he'd been he'd been good but this this character he created um the way he tweaked his character was was he did amazing work um the way he kind of he he stopped he was no longer the rock star he was kind of like this this kind of elder statesman um he talked very slowly. He uh, used big words, and uh, he didn't yell and scream anymore. He wasn't the flamboyant, outlandish rock star anymore. He was this kind of elder statesman heel of wrestling, almost. And it worked. It clicked very well. And it brought Jericho to a, to a level I think he had never gotten to before in WWE.
1: Now, I mean, when you consider his career and what he had accomplished prior to that, the fact that I think what he did for that... I don't know, six months, I think, give or take. Right. What he did for that time period, probably the best run of his.
2: I I, I agree because I feel like there were opportunities where the, the WWE could have given him that rocket ship when he was like a face, and it didn't really happen. Um, and I feel like he got he was when he was a heel and he was champion and he was undisputed champion. He was a lame duck. I don't think anyone can deny that he was. He had a run, but he was basically a transitional champion to Triple H. He was basically Triple H's bitch. Um, this was this was a huge transition for him, and I think it finally brought him up to a level where he was finally at the same level as a Shawn Michaels, as a Triple H that WWE creative had never let him get to before, and now he finally was. And I think this is this was the best work of his career. I never, I was, ex- when he came back and he kind of had the, you know, the, I liked the electric outfit and the kind of throwback gimmick he did, I feel like it had potential, but I feel he didn't live up to it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. But I mean, this is, for those of you who, do, who you know, maybe weren't watching at the time or who are reliving, but Even in an era of the internet being what it is and professional wrestling fans being what they are, especially professional wrestling fans on the internet, nobody cheered Chris Jericho during this time period. Didn't matter who he was in the ring with, you booed Chris Jericho. He had the kind of universal heat as a bad guy that you would kill for if you're in that position. I mean, it was just absolutely glorious to
2: watch. It was like getting. It was like getting getting a great heel character that could actually work for once. Um, and it's something I feel a lot of great heels uh, are unable to do.
1: It it's hard. Like they're good and in one
2: area. Like they're good in one area, but they're bad in an, in another. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, you got the whole complete setup with him as far as that went. Every, you know, he could work as a heel. He could talk as a heel, and everyone reacted to him as though he was a heel.
2: Um, but, I mean, now maybe this is me speaking as a smark or whatever, but honestly, everything that would come out of Jericho's mouth, I would honestly agree with.
1: Well, that's the crazy thing about what he was saying, and part of the reason I kind of refer to that period in time, and I think he does as well as the last honest man, was he did yes. nothing but speak the truth. Right. And some of it was truth from his perspective. Some of it was just, no, this is true. You, you know, Shawn Michaels is all of these negative things, or has been. You people are all of these negative things. CM Punk is all of these, you know, he didn't fabricate things. He didn't lie. He would twist the truth, or he would just say the truth if that was the desired response. And it it was so, so great. I mean, I enjoy Jericho now as kind of the occasional nostalgia act, but I really hope that at some point in the future he comes back and revisits this same type of character, because it was so, so good.
2: Right, I, I agree. And I, I, and I, again, I feel like when he came back and he was trying to do this kind of throwback, this weird kind of uh, throwback, kind of nostalgic, baby face, Who's a heel thing? It didn't. It didn't work. It started interesting, but it never. It never really. It never really worked out to me. It never really reached what you think it could have been. Like, I remember he would like come out every week. He would have the electric jacket, uh, and, and he would kind of tease us, and then like not do anything. And, well, that, yeah, and, he
1: wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't wrestle. And right. It was.
2: It was weird. And then, and then it was just, a, and then it was just a no, okay, I'm a heel now. It was like, okay, but what the, what the hell have you been doing for the last? Uh, well,
1: what
2: is all, what is all the like? Why we, why have you been doing all this nonsense? And it's like they ignored all of that, and it, I don't know. But yeah, I loved the last honest man. I think it's, it is without a doubt the best period of Pierico's career, just in terms of everything coming together for him. Because I remember. They brought him back as this. um, What he came back in 2007 as this kind of, you know, um, as the savior gimmick. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't work. It was half-hearted.
1: Right. He debuted and he went into a feud with Randy Orton, which no one benefits from.
2: Then I think he feuded with he feuded with JBL. It was some uninspired work. Yeah. Uh, And then when he when he turned into this character suddenly it clicked. It was it was, it was amazing.
1: Huh. I'm trying to think if there was anyone else from this time period that we... Oh, um, the other monster heel, and I say monster uh, in kind of a literal sense here, is from the Nin Ring presentation, the last guy kind of on my mental list uh, that I really wanted to talk about from this time period, uh, Umaga, actually Umanga. Is the oh, right. Nice. William Regal, for months, pronounced it as Umanga, because with the spelling in the uh, in traditional Samoan that's the correct pronunciation but no it's Humaga but I mean he's the other kind of monster heel off the top of my head that the WWE really for a long time kind of nailed the presentation Uh, how he looked how he performed in the ring he had the uh, handler Armando Estrada and he was just you know the savage from I think it was Samoa Is where they billed him from. I can't remember off the top of my head. But Moen, as I recall. Okay. I, I know that was his actual heritage, but that has very little to do with how they bill him. But he was presented as, again, a monster, destroyer, savage, and people bought into him. I mean, he was there killing people dead. And, I mean, yeah, he beat up on some guys smaller than him. I think he crushed Maria at one point. But he was also doing it to guys, you know, his own size. I mean, his, uh, what was it? He and John Cena had a last man standing match at the Royal Rumble that was, uh, just, I mean, especially when you consider that Cena was a little bit stale at this point in time. Uh, that match was a really impressive display from both guys.
2: Um, I liked, I liked Umaga's work, and I think in 2007 he just kept getting better. Um, it's unfortunate what happened with him. Um, you know, because I, uh, I really feel like he could have been a monster. Like I, you know, uh, I I feel like he could have been the main eventer that they kind of wanted Giant Kali to be. Um, it's unfor- it's unfortunate. Um, he got released because of uh, steroids, right? Is that what happened?
1: I think so. Uh, it was steroids, or it was some other wellness violation. Uh, and it turned out that uh, my assumption and my understanding is his use and abuse of various substances was kind of what led to the heart attack that killed him prematurely. Yeah,
2: it's uh, I, I, Umaga. I I I did not. I got to be honest. I did not like Umaga at first, but when he started like beating up Santino Morella, he really started <laughs> on me. Um, um, I wasn't. I I feel like he he he. He did his part well in the in the feud with Bobby Lashley, even though it was kind of a silly you know feud between um,
1: Trump and uh, McMahon, Donald
2: Trump and Vince McMahon. But I think he handled his his end of the feud well, and, and it's just unfortunate. I feel like if not you know for his personal issues, he could have really been uh, he really could have been a, I think a big main eventer at some point. All
1: right, I think that's everyone that I had on my list. Uh, that I really wanted to talk about going into this particular time frame. Can you think of anyone that we've missed?
2: Well, I feel like we didn't really get into Orton. Um, okay, we did talk about Orton as the Viper, but I feel like the one time they really had it for Orton where he could have been, to me, he could have been the next like Stone Cold Steve Austin, I think was WrestleMania 25, which maybe in hindsight that's wrong, but I remember going into that event, I felt like Orton at that time could have been, like, ridiculous. Like, he was really getting over. Um, The problem was is that the faces were the McMahons and Triple H, which (laughs) doesn't work to me because, I mean, like, like Triple H is saying, well, Vince McMahon's a 65-year-old man and you shouldn't hit him. Well, I mean, you you did that every week a year before with DX. I mean, how is that? I mean, you've been you you were the you were the biggest uh, douchebag of all time as the top heel. You were doing, I mean, you you screwed a mannequin corpse. Um, you beat up women. You did all sorts of horrible things, and I mean, um.
1: Well, and then factoring I, I, that that sixty-five year old uh, man comes out and goes toe to toe with Orton and Legacy about a week later.
2: Look, look and then you have what I li- I what I was liking about or- Orton is that he looked insane. He he looked and acted insane, and it looked like didn't know like when he came out you didn't know what he was gonna do. He he was like a loose cannon, and it was entertaining. He started like kicking people in the head every week. He made that his thing, and it worked. And I feel like that was his that was his prime opportunity. But they kamikaze that whole feud. They made it about Triple H getting. Uh, redemption for his family and his wife Because now they acknowledge that Triple H was a McMahon And uh, I hated all of that I hated the ending to WrestleMania 25 um, And that was just kind of a That's kind of the polar opposite of Seventeen Where you talk about how you set up a card And paste the card Where Triple H, uh, uh, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels at that event Had the match of the year but the problem is they put it on right like uh, before the main event,
0: <laughs> and no one on. cared.
2: At, after that match, no one cared. No one cared about Cena. Yeah. I mean, Cena versus Edge versus Big Show was a horrible match and it was a horrible feud anyway. No one cared about that match. No one cared about uh, Triple H, and the match was paced horribly. Uh, Wasn't
1: it? Was the horribly. Stipula- they attached that stupid stipulation of DQ yeah. will change hands. But
2: but they made it so like like. Orton was the heel, and Triple H had to get redemption and pay back for his wife, and they failed Orton, and I feel like Orton never recovered from never from not getting that was Rest, that was Orton's WrestleMania moment, and I feel Orton as a performer never recovered from never getting that moment.
1: Uh, I won't disagree with you too much there. It was an odd choice to end it that way. I mean, like, again. I have not enjoyed anything Randy Orton has done, but that a lot of that is my personal taste, my personal preference. Right. But objectively sure. speaking, you're in, uh, assessing, you know, what you know the crowd reaction to him at this point in time, his presentation as a guy who was crazy. No, it, it worked. I mean, it didn't work for me, but I'm not the I'm not the whole audience. I'm a guy right. who doesn't right. care about Randy Orton. But most people, and you included, I mean, people were reacting to what he was doing. Uh, he had some pretty serious heat the time he DDT'd Stephanie. And, I mean, kicking Vince McMahon in the head. And the way he looked after he'd done it, like, I don't remember doing this, what the heck happened. You know, he yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head and you said he presented himself as crazy. And no one knew what was going to happen. I mean, Dean Ambrose has kind of a sa- a similar vibe going on now. Not exactly the same, but similar kind of loose cannon Unpredictable thing going on
2: I I gotta be honest I I liked him kicking Vince McMahon in the head I liked This may make me sound like a bad person I liked him DDTing Stephanie And like holding Stephanie hostage And holding Raw hostage I mean I I like Maybe it goes back to the Stone Cold thing But you know you you like loose cannons Guys who kind of cause trouble And kind of break the format Break from format And do uh crazy things and i think orton played that character really well and i feel like wwe was not looking at the audience and not giving the audience what they wanted
1: yeah that's uh, that's been a problem all right uh again i think that we've hit everyone i wanted to talk about uh thanks for bringing up randy orton at that point in time again it uh my bias aside it was go- it was great stuff from uh objectively speaking um again I think that's everything I had on my I had on my list here so if uh anyone else on your mind that we've uh, looked overlooked not talked about
2: mm, in, I mean cuz we we're, we're, we're talking about 8 or 9 years so there probably yeah.
1: Oh there's there guys are going to um I mean there's plenty of stuff we haven't talked about here I mean in, Matt Hardy I mean, in Triple a couple H, of
2: roles. Uh, Triple H uh you know what can we re- what can what else can we really say? Um those are the, those are the ones that really stick out in my mind, but I mean, you know, Jericho's rated, you know, the top, the height of his rated R run, Jericho as the last honest man alive. Those were kind of the, the highlights of those years for me in terms of just quality, quality heel. Um, I feel CM Punk I guess CM Punk had never really been he yeah, he had yet to turn full on heel. Uh, Cause, uh he, did,
1: he did the Straight uh, Edge Society following this WrestleMania, I believe. Right,
2: is like right, when he but, got into
1: that. Um, yeah.
2: I think that I think Straight Edge Society was the following year. But yeah. he'd he'd had a brief like uh, a brief like cup of coffee as a heel with um the the, the new the new the new breed E. C. W. stable that lasted like I think a few weeks. But he was never a full on heel, so we can't really talk about CM Punk as a heel at this point um but really i think the the two best just in terms of overall like uh in ring in ring feuds matches the promos um the gimmick and the character i think the top 2 had to be edge and jericho what what would you say to that
1: i'd agree with that oh there was one other that i feel i need to throw an honorable mention to before we close out um, Eddie Guerrero in his unhinged role during his feud with Rey Mysterio. Well,
2: I did. I did not. I got. I. 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 You know. Um, not for you. Not for me. <laughs> I. I hated that. That whole feud. I thought was terrible, and nothing worked about it to me. Uh, I
1: they mean, had.
2: They had. A, they had a custody. A, a match for custody. Oh God, yes. Of a child. With <laughs> in uh, a, with ladder a, a ladder match.
1: Where Vicky Blue or Q. I know. <laughs> And don't get me wrong. Where, where like a child,
2: they bring in a child services worker who takes custody, who takes interim custody of of uh, Rey Mysterio's son Dominic, um, and takes him away from his from his father, and then sits with him ringside and lets him go into the ring so he can get beaten up by Eddie Guerrero who when he's trying to help his daddy. Rey, it, it, it was horrible. I'm sorry. Okay. No,
1: no, the, the inclusion of Dominic was pretty darn stupid. Okay,
2: they had a match, like they had a match where uh, I think, um, I think a Great American match or something, where, um, if, if Eddie Guerrero lost, he he would not be allowed to reveal the the stupid secret, and then the next night he goes ahead and reveals it anyway. Well, I mean, if you're gonna have a stupid stipulation like that, to me, my problem you was
1: should at least hold to it. <laughs>
2: No, no. My problem with in wrestling, if you're going to do a stupid stipulation, there should be a consequence. Uh, something should be held accountable uh, if someone, you know, if they rightfully do not hold up their end of the deal. Something should happen.
0: But whatever.
2: Um, and then they kind of made it out like Rey Mysterio, um, like Eddie had never beaten Rey Mysterio when he'd beaten him like a year before. On SmackDown, is like, oh, okay, so we're gonna be like that now. I hate like, I hate short-term booking that kind of ignores everything that's happened before. Really, I I never like that. Um, I mean, I think Eddie and Mysterio had had some good did some good work together, but the feud itself, I, I I thought was I thought it was wrestle crap. I'm sorry, Robert.
1: No, no, I mean, once they brought in Dominic, I thought they had really gone a bridge too far there. But there were a couple of there was a couple of weeks when Eddie was obsessed with beating Ray, and he would cut these disturbing promos with a Ray Mysterio mask, and he would put it on his opponents. And there were just touches of I thought really interesting kind of crazy heel Eddie Guerrero in there. That I, 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 I agree
2: I like with that. that. Eddie does that stuff. Yeah, Eddie did Eddie did that stuff really well. Then um,
1: again. The family gets introduced, both Eddie's and Ray's, and it gets stupid. It right. got really stupid. I mean, the other, the only saving grace, I feel, after that was their actual blow-off match, uh, which was on SmackDown. It was a steel cage match, and right. Eddie uh, beat Ray. It was a good match. But other than that, uh, there was a stretch of, again, a couple of months there when it got stupid, it did give us that great "I'm Your Poppy" T-shirt,
2: which was awesome. And this might be tough to talk about, but Eddie, pa- I remember Eddie passing on, and I feel like I feel Rey Mysterio. The whole problem with Rey Mysterio is that WWE was never willing to get fully behind him as the top guy, and I felt like the only reason they were putting him in there was to kind of, you know, because he was Eddie's buddy or something, and, and that never and that never There's worked. True um and and I loved I loved Eddie's work. I loved him as a performer. I like Rey Mysterio in his glory days, but I feel like his main event run was was the reason it was a lame duck run is cuz it was never the WWE never really wanted to get behind him as a main event guy and it, and I I got to be honest, I hated all the stuff with he was doing it for Eddie and he, it's all oh, about God. Eddie. That, and and yeah, I feel like yeah. that really it really messed up. Um, I don't know. It, it put in, it. It really tainted the whole thing.
1: It, it stopped. It, it was never about Ray, and he's the guy right. you're putting the belt on. And don't get me wrong. You you know if Ray wants to you know do something in tribute or have it be kind of a backdrop, you know, his friendship with Eddie and whatnot. That's that's one thing if it's handled properly. It's another thing for everything he does for a year plus to be specifically in memory of Eddie and it was it just got to be too much and it overshadowed everything else that they were trying to do with him and it was a classic case of something that never got started because it was never set up from
2: I think it says a lot that you know Rey Mysterio won the Royal Rumble that year and he didn't get to main event WrestleMania well,
1: heck! That the Rumble wasn't even the main event of that particular like, yeah, Rumble yeah. pay-per-view.
2: Yep. That was now, one of those rare. That was also one of those rare instances. Uh,
1: my understanding, as far as that went, was they were worried about Ray being tired and not being able to hit the final el- elimination. So if he botched it, they could have ended the, with uh, the Undertaker returning to challenge uh, which, Kurt which, Angle.
2: Which is amusing because the T Cena botched their finish of <laughs> yeah. Royal. R-
1: Yeah, they indirectly or directly, depending on how you view things, caused Vince McMahon to tear the quads in both legs. Right. That's still one of the funniest things I've ever seen, him coming down, going to do the slide, and then immediately being unable to stand. I mean, I know it's searing pain, and I shouldn't laugh at another human's agony, but it just amused me to watch him be angry Vince from a seated position. I don't
2: think there's anything wrong with being a little amused with, you know, Vince hurting... (laughs) he's doing that silly ridiculous strut he's clopping on down he, he could trot. have just
1: walked he could have just taken the stairs he didn't have to slide
2: it's his own fault so i, it mean, is. I, I mean like you know whatever uh, yeah i
1: mean to make matters worse as far as that particular royal rumble goes on every replay you see of it, while they're trying to sort out, you know, to save time because they botched the finish, if you actually watch what happens, one of John Cena's legs never touches the ground. It lands on Batista's chest. Right. In every replay they show from, like, every angle, Cena's foot clearly never touches the ground, and we can't right. figure this out. Oh, well. But that was kind of l- a anyway, uh Anyway, that's all the major acts that I wanted to talk about. And, again, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. Again, this is a nine-year period of history that we're kind of glossing over. We haven't touched on, you know, Booker T's heel run on SmackDown, Matt Hardy in a couple of different versions.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, All I'll say is I loved King Booker. Uh, I'll say this. Booker T never clicked in WWE until he found... Well, he, uh, when he had his brief uh, face run, when he, when he was t- tag-teaming with, with Goldust and he had a brief face run, I think he was doing okay. But he never really clicked <coughs> until he became King Booker. And that was the best work he ever did. And I loved King Booker and most of the stuff he did. And then, of course, you know, ultimately they they jobbed him out to Triple H and eventually he came back and, you know, mended fences with WWE. But, um Man, I feel like they never got enough out of King Booker. Uh,
1: it, he heard... It I. It was good.
2: I, lo- I, loved, I loved King Booker.
1: I feel that he... I don't know if he benefited from kind of being exclusive to SmackDown at the time because it never would have happened on Raw. But by the same token, SmackDown at that point was clearly the B-show and didn't matter as much. So he didn't... By extension, he didn't matter quite as much. i got to
2: be honest. That was one of those periods where I feel like now it was turning back to SmackDown was better than Raw again, and it happened more. It happened more than once. Um, and like I was digging King Booker, um, and I think he had a decent feud with Batista and uh, Lastly and a couple other dudes. Um, and I think he was doing he was doing good stuff as champion.
1: Yeah, he was. Uh, him and his court. I mean, the fact that he had a uh, Finley and Regal as his enforcers was pretty cool. Uh, they. Created a really interesting dynamic. Uh, it, yeah. I, again, it's just one of those things where it was a time where Smack anything that kind of got going on SmackDown seemed to just get transplanted to Raw and then would flounder.
2: And I and I think at the time this is when Undertaker was doing some of the best work of his career, and they transitioned the title back to Batista, and the feud with Undertaker worked really well. Um. All all that stuff, I think, was really working on SmackDown at the time. Uh, MVP. Uh, Not really a top-level heel, but I feel like MVP, um, as he got deeper into his run, was really coming into his own. Um, 2007 and 2008, he was doing tremendous work, and then WWE just decided to start uh, punishing him and jobbing him out, and he never recovered. And that's the story for a lot. There's a few guys this has happened to. You know, they they come in, they give him a big push at the outset, and then they just lose interest with him and make him another guy. And MVP was one of those guys. You cannot tell me, watching MVP, from 2007 to 2008, he was not working like he could have been a top-level guy at some point.
1: No, he had all the potential in the world at that point, and the crazy, I'm not a big fan of uh, TNA wrestling, but he's doing some good stuff over there right now, too. I mean, he's clearly still got it going. I just and his character in wrestling at the time, especially uh, WWE, as that, you know, pompous arrogant, spoiled uh, star athlete was a really great character. I mean, he it's one of those things where he might have been a tad ahead of the curve in that those, you know, people in real life wind up getting a lot of, you know, dislike to them and more so, I mean he was doing that before everyone was kind of aware of that character in real life and it was a real shame that he didn't get more of a uh, more of an opportunity Because he was doing some really good
2: work. Uh, It's a shame, but I mean, that's just... I think that's one of those examples of you have a dynamite heel, he looks like he's a rising star, um, and then for just some reason or or another, WWE decides uh, we're going to punish him and job him out. And I just don't get it. When they do things, I just don't understand. Like, why would you do that? This kid could be like one of your future... Maybe he's not going to be the next Rock. Maybe he's not going to be the next Hulk Hogan. But he could make money for you. I mean, look at Edge. Edge had the fight to get that opportunity, and I and yeah. I'm just like, I feel like, and Edge is a Hall of Famer, and I feel like MVP could have been that. And it's it's really through no fault of his own. And there are many stories we can find for this. You know, guys just who are who are so good, and they're doing such great work. It's just that's kind. This is kind of one of the unfortunate things about the business, kind of the nature of the business. There are guys, there are guys who, who do good work and have these good runs, and then for whatever one reason or another, WWE just loses interest in them um, and just decides to job him out or, or whatever. And MVP did not get fired. He decided to quit because I think he saw the writing was on the wall. And, you know, I think – he made the right move and, and uh he's done good work consistently throughout the years. So, I mean, he seems to be doing okay. It's just a letdown to me that you had a star in the making like M V P. And that you let Petty B S get in the way of making him a bigger star.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He was he was so interesting. I mean, his interactions at his feud, pseudo feud with Teddy Long at the time were just
2: Right were so much fun. With Matt Hardy, his feud with Matt Hardy was fantastic. I thought it was so was so well done and ahead of its time. And and just it was it was like the last. It that was like their his last great feud. It was really Matt Hardy's last great feud, for that matter, as well. Uh, it, it was yeah. really the peak of both guys in the WWE for their WWE runs. And um, even when MVP was getting jobbed out. I remember he would like go out there with, and he could have a good match with anybody. And to me, like that's the guy you you want on your roster, and you could push to a higher level. I just don't get
1: it. Uh, you know, I I wish I knew. I, I really do. Even I mean, whether I agree or not, it's one of those things I wish I understood better.
2: I, and I uh, think, and, and I'm not going to say it's going to happen to him soon, but the guy I see it happening to right now. Just for comparison, you know, so we connect back to this time period. It's what was happening to MVP in that time period. I feel is now happening to Cesaro.
1: Oh God, that guy should be. I first. L- let me say this. First of all, as far as Cesaro goes, I'm a huge fan. I've been a fan of of him when he was wrestling in Combat Zone Wrestling with Chris Hero as part of the Kings of Wrestling. And he was going by his real name, Claudio Castagnol. His stuff in Chikara, his stuff in Ring of Honor, his stuff in CZW. I've been a fan of his for a really long time. And I don't know what the hesitancy is to get him really going. But I hope whatever it is, they get over it. Because I love him. The fans love that guy. He's great. You know, he's not the best promo, but he's got charisma. And it's not the loud, boisterous, you know, charisma that you're used to getting from, you know, Cena or Hogan or even the kind of thing you get from Randy Orton, as far as no, presentation goes. He's
2: got, got personality. He carries himself with charisma, and he has it factor. You know, he's not he's uh, not like a bland worker. He he's not. Uh, he doesn't look bland or present himself bland or generically. He carries himself with a lot of charisma. Um, and, he, and, he, and he works excellently in the ring, and he, ca- and he executes his character well in the ring. Yeah, he has all those elements. I just don't I don't understand it either.
1: Uh, what was the celebrity comparison I heard on someone? Someone compared him to Jason Statham, and it struck me as very apt, in that if you've ever seen a Jason Statham movie type thing, he's not big, loud, boisterous, over the top, but you you always want to see what he's doing and he, everything he does you know he presents himself very well and he's got that you know like you said the it factor you want to watch right. him and right. whoever compared him to Jason Statham i forget what uh, which podcast right. i heard it on but it was completely accurate
2: but i i remember when mvp first came in i wasn't really high on him but after his feud with kane i guess you know i guess it was it was really the feud with Benoit. I mean, you know...
1: Oh, he and Benoit had some great stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's hard for me to talk... It's just hard for me to talk about Benoit because of what happened yeah. with him. But the fe- the matches he had with Benoit just really upped, upped uh, MVP's stock in my mind. And, and I feel like it brought MVP to another level. And then he had that feud with Matt Hardy that I just thought was excellent. And uh, I loved uh, that feud and all the matches they had. Um, and I felt like after that feud was over, it felt like there were going to be bigger and better things. And there was a rumor with MVP that apparently he, he made a joke about a guy taking his his piss test or something. He made he insulted him or something. And I don't know if that's even true, but I feel, I don't know. It felt like they were making him run a ag- guy. It's like you bring a guy in, you protect him, and then you push him really hard. Then why why suddenly, like, job him out like that. I just don't understand why you would do that with a with a potential star like MVP. Do you have any uh, insight I, on that, Robert?
1: I have no clue what happened there. I really don't. I mean, uh, again, on the one hand, I understand you don't want to just strap a rocket to a guy right off the bat and he never has to, you know, put in some work type of scenario. I understand I like making sure point, they're actually in it. But I feel at this like at point, that point- Right. Look, anybody who wrestles Benoit voluntarily for that much—that much—I mean, even you know—I understand a lot of people have some issues with that. But if you can kind of put aside, you know, what happened, and just kind of remember the style he wrestled, right. that wasn't something people were lining up to say, "Sure, I'll go do that."
2: I feel like I feel like he had already paid his dues, and there were only yeah. better things on the horizon for him. Uh, it's it's just one of those weird things. It's like, look. When you had a Brock Lesnar, they didn't wait, They didn't mess around with Brock Lesnar. And I realize Brock Lesnar looks like a freak of nature, and he's he look. I mean, he looks insane, and and you know that can and that can open a lot of doors for you. But I mean, I mean, I just eh, I don't know. We could probably go back and forth on this for hours.
1: We could, yeah. Just you know what they're doing, what they're doing wrong, and all that fun stuff. Right. But that is going to wrap up our discussion of this particular time period. Again, I'd like to I thank Mr. Harris for being here. Great. Thank
2: you, Robert. Thank you for having me.
1: So uh, you got anything to plug?
2: Uh, yes. So if you go to 411 uh, um, check out my reviews of uh, Dracula Untold and uh, The Judge. Uh, my next review will be the movie Oesia based on the, the board <laughs> game. They made a movie. Oh, jeez. They made a movie out of a board game.
1: But like Battleship,
2: remember that? Uh, Unfortunately, yes. So I'm seeing that next week, and uh, I'll have a review of that up on uh, the site. Uh, Check out my column on uh, UFC. Uh, They've announced that Roy McDonald is going to be fighting the winner of Robbie Lawler versus Johnny Hendricks and kind of the trouble we've had with setting up title fights throughout this year and how, you know. uh, how it's getting now and then it, and then it promptly falls apart is w, is UFC jumping the gun by maybe you know an, you know setting up this fight and what's going to happen with that uh so check that out um uh let's see what else do I have uh coming up um still got the the interview with Jake Ellenberger um it's just you know it's it's a, a longer interview and uh, once I sit down and transcribe it It'll be up there, uh, you know. Um, he'll he'll be fighting next month, so it'll be it'll definitely be up uh, before then.
1: All right, look forward to reading that.
2: Uh, Robert, tell sorry, what was that? Thank you.
1: All right, uh, as far as I go, I've taken a couple of weeks off from writing columns. I've done. A lo- I've been doing uh, some coverage, including World Series of Fighting 14, headlined by Jake Shields and some guy he tapped out at almost the end of the first round. Only Jake Shields could make a first round submission win boring. But I will have something up uh, this week. I'm planning on doing a big breakdown of the upcoming Featherweight title fight between Chad Mendez and Jose Aldo. So look for that. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, so, again, in the MMA section of 411 Mania. I also host the 411 Ground and Pound Radio show Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern. We took a hiatus last week because there was nothing worth talking about. Uh, nothing in the news, no fights. None of that fun stuff. So we took a week off. We'll be back this coming Sunday, 8 p.m. We will be previewing UFC 179, Aldo versus Mendez 2. That whole pay per view top to bottom. Jeff Harris will probably be back. Uh, he's normally there. So tune into that. It is a call in show. Information for how to get in touch if you want to have your voice on the air is given out at the top of each show. Be sure to check out all the great shows here on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. We got a bunch of them. They're all worth listening. Uh, we got sports, we got news of the day. Uh, Comic source material, my show, uh, movies, metal, if you're into metal music, all of it. Subscribe, uh, Blog Talk, Stitcher, iTunes, that, that way you just get it all. You can rate us, you can give reviews, all that good stuff. So I encourage you to do that. I'll be back next week. I'm trying to get back on track for once a week, everybody. want to go back to weekly. Uh, That will be WWE from WrestleMania 25 to the present, give or take, is the time frame I want to discuss. So all the great uh, heel characters that have come about, uh, the state of the business currently, all that good stuff. So tune in next week, same time. And I will be sure to get all that information out. If you want information as it becomes available, the Radledge and Broadcasting Network Facebook page uh, provides all the information. So go over there, like that, get all the information there. That's going to wrap us up here. Again, I have to thank Jeff Harris for being on this on a little bit of short notice. It's always nice to have him on. I'll be back next week. Until then, remember, if you don't have a decent villain, your hero, he's just a strange man in tights, and nobody wants that. Night everybody. So say good night to the bad guy.